you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Studios. Hi everyone, it's John Horn. I just got back from a cold, crowded Sundance Film Festival where I got to interview some great actors and filmmakers. In this week's episode, one of those conversations, actor, writer, comedian, and now first-time filmmaker Randall Park. His movie Shortcomings is based on the graphic novel of the same name by Adrian Tomina, which he first came across in 2007. It was a such a pipe dream at the time, and I don't know, 15 years later, and I, it's just kind of wild how it's a movie and I directed it. It's uh, it's just funny how life works. Plus, my conversation with Sundance programmer John Nine, one of the people who decides what gets into the festival and what doesn't. But first, this year's Oscar nominations were announced earlier this week. Here's my conversation with KPCC's Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. We first talked about the movie that got the largest number of nominations, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Now that we're two days out from the nominations, have you given its strong showing more thought? Well, yes. First of all, it's very easy to say it now. We used to be, is it everywhere, everything? Is it all, what is it? And now it's much easier to say. Um, And it's really great that its cast earned four acting nominations, unlike the actors in Parasite, which won the Best Picture Oscar, none of whom were nominated. Uh, Star Michelle Yeoh became the first woman who identifies as Asian to be nominated for Best Actress. But when you look a little deeper, it feels like the voters in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences remain stuck in the past. Uh, Speaking of stuck in the past, let's talk about the directing category. Yep, yep, yet again. It was populated only by men, and that follows consecutive wins in the category by Nomadland's Chloe Zhao and The Power of the Dog's Jane Campion. Sarah Polly was not nominated for Making Women Talking. You know, that's my favorite movie of last year, but her film was a surprising pick for Best Picture, and she was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, as she should have been. What about in the performance categories, John? That's where I think there's a real problem. Uh, Films made by and starring black filmmakers and performers were largely missing in all the major categories. Angela Bassett was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and she becomes the first performer in a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie to be nominated in an acting category. But The Woman King, Till, and Nope were blanked, even though The Woman King's Viola Davis was considered a favorite in the Best Actress race. And I have to believe that Davis lost out to Andrea Riseborough for her very obscure film to Leslie. Her nomination was directly the result of a coordinated grassroots campaign by a variety of really big stars. And it's too bad, and to me a little bit infuriating, that those same stars, people like Gwyneth Paltrow, Amy Adams, and Kate Winslet, 
couldn't get behind a black performer like Viola Davis or Daniel Deadweiler, who stars in Till. Both Davis and Deadweiler should have been nominated for lead actress, but weren't. Still, I should mention the nomination of the black actor Brian Tyree Henry for supporting actor in Causeway. I saw The Woman King last week, and I was knocked out by Viola Davis's performance. But uh, yeah, maybe the Oscar voters weren't. <laughs> Evidently not. Well, good luck to all of them. Um, were there any nominations, John Horn, that made you particularly happy? Um, I was really happy that Women Talking made the Best Picture race. Um, I think it's interesting that two movies that have grossed more than a billion dollars globally made the Best Picture race as well. That's Top Gun Maverick and Avatar The Way of Water. Um, I think that's a real interesting turn for the Academy. Maybe it means that people will tune back into the ceremony. We'll see. I thought it was a pretty good slate outside of Viola Davis and Danielle Deadweiler not getting nominated. Thank you so much, John. My pleasure. Coming up after the break, three years after the Sundance Film Festival was last held in person, the throngs have returned to Utah, along with some pretty good movies. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Owing to the pandemic, there hasn't been a Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah since 2020, when I, along with seemingly half the free world's population, returned to the festival a week ago, it felt like nothing had changed except everything had. The nation's most important showcase for movies made outside the studio system is both a festival and a marketplace. It's where independently financed movies come looking for a distributor in hopes of reaching an audience. Sometimes that works out great. Coda premiered at Sundance two years ago and then won the Best Picture Oscar. Yet even in that brief time between Coda's festival debut and this year's Sundance, the movie business has turned upside down. Post-COVID, fewer people are going to the multiplex, and those that have returned are almost exclusively seeing sequels like Top Gun Maverick and Avatar The Way of Water. Smart adult dramas like Women Talking, She Said, Tar and Till, meanwhile, played to nearly empty auditoriums. And that dynamic played out at Sundance this year. In the first half of the festival, about six movies sold to major distributors, but as the festival wrapped up, the buying cooled fast and scores of Sundance movies have yet to be sold. That includes Randall Park's Shortcomings. It's a romantic comedy 
comedy with not much romance, but a fair amount of comedy. It's an entertaining movie that deserves to be seen outside of Park City, Utah. I spoke with Park soon after his film had its first Sundance screening, and he was both exhausted and giddy. I showed him a cover of a book on my laptop. That is the cover to the graphic novel of Shortcomings that came out in uh, 2007 by the great Adrian Tomina. Tell me about the first time you either saw that cover or read that book. Or were they one and the same? I distinctly remember when I first saw it. Uh, It was in 2007. I was at the giant robot store on Sawtell Boulevard in Los Angeles. Uh, And they have a bunch of great books there great graphic novels, and I saw the cover of Shortcomings. And I was it really piqued my interest because it was illustrated in the style that felt, I don't know, it evoked a sense of Americana to me. But the faces looked like mine. And I hadn't seen anything quite like that, drawn in that style. And I opened it up and in the store, and I was just completely immersed in the story. It's such a simple story that felt so real to me and, and, and reflected uh, my life at the time in so many ways. And I saw myself in each of the characters uh, for better and for worse, mostly for worse. And uh, uh, I just read the whole thing in the store and bought it. And I had no money at the time. I was a, very much a struggling actor. I bought it, took it home, read it again. It's one thing to be immersed in a book. It's another thing to adapt that book into a film. And yeah. years pass. Is it something that was always in the back of your mind? Or was it even more present, more forward? Were you just looking for the chance when things might align, when you had a possibility of telling the story? It was always in the back of my mind I, ever since I read it. Even even like right when I read it, because I was this struggling actor, I, I had so I was so inspired by it because you know a, a graphic novel it's like a storyboard for a movie you know and uh, uh, and I thought wow these are the kinds of movies that I love you know the the walking and talking hanging out in restaurants and diners and and apartments and the, I mean those are my favorite kind of movies those those real life kind of kind of stories and uh, but yeah at the time you just never saw folks like me in those kinds of movies. So I always thought, oh gosh, I would love for, you know, for something, I would love to star as Ben uh, and to have this made as a movie. And, you know, it was a such a pipe dream at the time. And uh, I don't know, 15 years later, and I, it's just kind of wild how it's a movie and I directed it. It's, 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 uh, it's just funny how life works. And at that point, I suspect you were too old to play Ben or just <laughs> wanted a better actor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Both. <laughs> when did you reach out to Adrian and when did he become one of your collaborators? Well, I, so it's funny because over the years, I would check in with my agents and be like, what's going on with shortcomings, you know? And maybe about like four years, five years ago, I uh, asked my agent, uh, at UTA, like, can we look into shortcomings? And at the time, I was on Fresh Off the Boat. Do you have a script at that point, or just? Well, I didn't know. Did I, you I, even have an option on the book? No, I just asked because I, for all those years, nothing had happened with it, and I was like, "What's going on?" Uh, and they were like, "You know, Adrian's repped by us. You should write him a letter." And I chickened out. 
I chickened out because I, you know, I had associated Adrian with so much with Ben from shortcomings that I was like, oh gosh, I, I think the last person he'll want to hear from is the dad from Fresh Off the Boat. <laughs> uh, but but years later, I I started this production company and uh, asked, you know, again, nothing had happened with the book, and I was like, let's look into let's look into this book, and we found out that it had been optioned by Roadside Attractions, and, and that there was a script, and Adrian had written the script, and he actually had written it not long after the book came out, many years before, and, uh, and they were looking for directors. And uh, I was like, oh my God, I've been imagining this as a movie for 15 years, I, I have to throw my hat in the ring. I'd never directed a feature before, but I had done some TV, and I did, you know, had done a lot of shorts and web stuff, and, and uh, uh, and I was like, I, I, I got to do this. I got to throw my hat in the ring, and, and uh, came up with this this very detailed pitch, and and they brought me and and uh, our production company on on board. Nita Jacobson, who produced Crazy Rich Asians, mm -hmm. told me the story about when she was trying to set up the movie. Yeah, and she pitched it everywhere. Not one, but not two. Either studio chiefs or very senior production executives said to her, and I'm quoting them. Do they have to be Asian? Yeah. And Nina said, of course they do. But I think there's a reverse of shortcomings. They don't have to be Asian. Yeah. They are. Yeah, yeah, totally. To me, it is deeply an Asian American story. But it doesn't have any of those, those markers of what an Asian American story usually has. Whether it be like story centered on intergenerational conflict or, uh, um, you know, going back to the motherland or to find oneself or achieving the American dream, you know, and those stories are, are all great and important to me. And, uh, I see myself in those stories, but this is really just hanging out in diners and restaurants and walking and talking and, and arguing. And, you know, it's, it's those things that, I actually do every day, you know. What you're talking about is representation because yeah. as I you know, when I was telling the story about Nina, the problem is that characters if they're identified by their race, they have to be a certain way rather yeah. than just being ordinary people. And <laughs> yeah. and the characters in shortcomings are ordinary people yeah. who go through the same struggles that black characters do, that Muslim yeah. characters do, that disabled characters do. Well, I think the industry, which is, you know, predominantly white, they, like now, today, it's like they understand the value of, of Asian American stories, of African American stories, of, you know, different traditionally underrepresented groups. But they want those stories to provide them with something that white stories can't provide, right? We want your stories for the cultural specific things that we can't cover, you know? Uh, but if it's just hanging out in diners, walking and talking, getting into conversation, deep conversations and arguments, we got that. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's where we put Timmy Chalamet <laughs> and, you know. Brie Larson, I don't know who, name, name your person. Yeah, we want you for your dumplings. Exactly. You know, we want you for your uh, immigration stories. We want you for your intergenerational conflict or, or cultural traumas. Uh, we want you for, you know, all the things that we can't do ourselves. Uh, even though most of our 
and my daily life is not that much different from anyone else's. Well, and that gets to a, the bigger story of shortcomings, and that is these are flawed characters. Yeah. These are characters who have struggles. These are characters who don't always make the right decisions. These are people who aren't perfect, yeah. and that's the story, right? That's the story. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're very flawed, particularly Ben. Uh, uh, but every character has their shortcomings, and uh, that's what I love about the story. It's like... It, I just love how simple it is and how real it is. And to me, it's, it's, it's authentic. Let's talk about the opening scene because there is a film festival yeah. and there is a scene from a movie, a fictional movie, yeah. but I think we've seen that movie <laughs> Yeah, where we've seen many versions of that movie yeah. and it gives the film a great opportunity to talk about the very things you're talking about yeah. now, about what is and is not Meaningful representation, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that scene and what Ben has on his mind? Because what Ben has on his mind is what we're talking about right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the so at the beginning of the movie, uh, there's a movie within a movie that uh, that our character Ben and Miko, and they're a couple, and and they're they're watching this movie at an Asian American film festival, and this movie is uh, reminiscent of Crazy Rich Asians. And Crazy Rich Asians, when it came out, and to this day, was very important to the community. And in the scene, it's very important to Miko. It's very important to everyone in that audience. But Ben doesn't like it. He's, he, it he just doesn't like it. And to me, that's so real to me. It's like, I personally loved Crazy Rich Asians. I went to the premiere. I was just incredibly moved and... and but there were always friends of mine, you know, who, who would tell me I, I didn't like it, you know. And I think when there's a, like a scarcity of stories out there, it's like the one thing that comes out and, you know, it has to represent everybody. And I think a lot of people felt like cornered into like, why does this have to represent me, you know. What was the biggest creative challenge in your directing this film? Um... I think pre-production only because I was so nervous that I wouldn't, you know, because it was my first, that I prepared so hard. I like over-prepared. I was storyboarding the, the movie before we even had locations. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I, I was, I had, a, a book, a book of notes on every scene, every line almost. And I was doing it all in pre-production because I wanted to be confident once we started shooting. I wanted to feel like prepared. And, uh, and I'm so glad I did because during production, I mean, it was, it was such a joy. It was, uh, I felt confident. I felt, you know, there were challenging days, but I, I felt like we'll get through this. And, uh, uh, and I'd say, the, you know, the rest, it certainly wasn't a breeze. It was it was work, but it was very joyful work. And just overall, including pre-production, was just a great experience. And what about finding your actors, uh, especially your leads? Casting was tough because there was so much talent. There was so much talent. And I knew a lot of the talent, you know, personally, who were uh, auditioning for these parts. And I just, I already knew how great these actors were. 
so there was this familiarity. And I knew how much they wanted these roles because Asian Americans never get to play roles quite like these. And uh, so I knew how important it was to everybody. So, so it, was, it was tough, but you know, we, the actors we got were, were, were the ones for the parts. Last question, yeah. what was the most rewarding part about making this film? Gosh, I mean, there was, everything was so rewarding. My, my immediate thought is last night. At the premiere. Yeah, at the premiere. You were there. I was there. It was just so incredible. It was incredible. It was, it was very emotional. It, it, was just a, 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 it was just a beautiful dream. Randall, great to see you again. Good to see you too. Thank you for having me. That was Randall Park, the director of Shortcomings, which premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Coming up after the break, if you love movies, is this the best job in the world? Deciding what films get into Sundance. My conversation with John Nine, a senior programmer with the festival. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. The chances of getting your movie into Sundance are almost incalculable. Imagine you're applying early action to Yale and you've got a 1.27 GPA and were recently arrested for shoplifting. Again, imagine you're one of the people who have to choose which of those thousands of movies get the golden ticket. There are a lot of people's hopes riding on that decision. John Nine is a senior programmer and director of strategic initiatives at the Sundance Film Festival. I started by raining a bit on his Sundance parade. The festival was just hours from opening, and I started with some bad news. If you look at what's happening at the multiplex, the kinds of movies that would have played at Sundance, but these movies didn't, are dying a very quick death. Movies like She Said, Tar, Women Talking, Till, like Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. Like 80% of the tickets sold are going to movies like Jurassic World, Top Gun. There is no middle and there's no bottom. And there's, you know, there's a breakout every now and then. Everything, everywhere, all at once would be a good example. But the theatrical market for those movies has vanished. And I think if you are a studio executive or an independent producer, you could say, well, that's a very different financial consideration now, and it's not for the better. Does that change the role that Sundance might play? And when you look at those numbers, it just as a film lover, how do you feel? 
Um, My yeah. wife would object. Compound question, but okay. well, it is. It's a compound question. So let me. But but I but I think it's a, it's a good one, and frankly, it is the one that is at the heart of um, the industry right now, and the heart of how we think about the festival. I think, you know, to some degree. It remains to be seen what happens over the next year or two years and, and whether people do ease back into the, the, the theaters. Um, I, you know, I would say if we step back and ask the question, do we fundamentally believe that there is not an audience for these kinds of films? And I think most of us would probably say we don't believe that. We think there is an audience. And so the question is, what is the challenge in front of the you know, sort of exhibition and distribution community in terms of finding that audience? Is there maybe um, you know, pressure to innovate, um, and not just the distributors and the exhibitors, but festivals, production, et cetera? Certainly, that has to be there. But from the standpoint of the, the role of the festival, one thing that I've always um, talked about in, in relation to Sundance and certainly other festivals as well, too, is that it's so important that we exist outside the market mechanism in which some of those aspects that are considered fundamental to distribution can be, you know, to some degree disproven by the success of the film at the festival, certainly with audiences. Distributors will say that that's anecdotal, and, and certainly it may be in some cases, but there's also those times when you see how well an, a film works, you, you can clearly sense that there is an appetite and a market for that film, and so then it is on the, you know, sort of distribution, exhibition world to kind of figure out how do we find that audience. Right. I mean, and knowing the history of Sundance, I mean, your founder, Robert Redford, said one of the founding principles of, of the festival was to figure out how to get these movies seen. And he wasn't talking about Park City, uh, where the festival moved. He was talking about how do you get them seen in a, in a more, in a, in a global sense. And you know, for years, there has been an alternative, and that is streaming. But let's talk about what's happening in streaming. Disney has lost $8 billion on its streaming platforms, Disney Plus and Hulu. Uh, Netflix says it's focusing on bigger, better, and fewer movies. And Warner Brothers Discovery, which owns HBO Max, is gutting, um, gutting HBO Max and cutting, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars from its acquisition and production mar uh, budget. So... If it's not theatrical and it's not streaming, what is it? Is it showing movies on the side of a barn? <laughs> Maybe it is. Maybe we'll have a new venue next year on the side of a barn. But uh, yeah, I mean, I do think that that is an interesting question. In some ways, it's wrapped up in some very complicated economics of the business. And I'm not, you know, a, a savvy analyst of some of those, you know, metrics. But I do think it, it for me, it begs the question, um, whether or not there is a role for festivals, which will seem familiar to those of us who have been around for a while, uh, meaning the mid-90s, when some of those same pressures existed and acquisition community turned to the notion of completed films, right? The film is completed. And that idea that um, they have had to some degree challenges with success of um, in-house productions, like is there a way that people come back to Sundance because these films are finished, they are what they are, um, um, you know, certainly that is one hope that I have. But I guess it goes back to that same question, you know, from, from before. Like, okay, so if it's not theatrical and it's not um, uh, the, the at-home, you know, platform audience, does it exist? Well, it, I think we have to say it does, right? Mm -hmm. So the, it, it's not that the films are broken. And in fact, if anything, I look at the program this year and you know, we talk more about this, but I see a lot of films that recognize 
how it is that you in, infuse vitality and narrative and poetic energy into films in order to, to sort of make them more marketable, make them more enticing, make them more attractive to audiences. To break through the clutter. To break through the clutter. And, and so that's and what I we're hate seeing. to say this, to not be Sundance movies. Well, you know, and I, I guess we bristle. You know, what I, I do. you know what I mean by that. I do. I do. And, and I think There's some it's, teenager who is like unhappy and like is going to go off his girlfriend and, you know, yes. be and, sad for 90 minutes. And and to, to guitar music. And, and I, you know, I think we bristle at that because we look at a program of, you know, 120 films each year and it's hard for us to see any one thing that makes them, you know, the, the commonality. But I do think that that is an encouraging sign when you see filmmakers aware of, of the clutter, right? The, that, hey, I actually have to make something that is distinctive in these ways and that they're doing so in a way that doesn't feel, um, you know, that it's a, a sort of compromise or concession, um, but rather it is, uh, you know, and I would point to some of the films like from the last few years that use genre in such interesting ways. And we certainly have some of those this year as well too. Like, is that a way that they're like, oh, this is how I have to find a freshness. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. That was John Nine, a senior programmer and director of strategic initiatives at the Sundance Film Festival. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS Newsroom. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.